Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he puts the oomph in Temple of Triumph. That's Matt Morgan. Hey, Joey. Why did the fish blush? Why did the fish blush? Because it saw the ocean's bottom. Oh, that's... (laughs) I I love how you read... (laughs) I get it. Like, that joke was kind of cheeky. You ride the lion every time, Matt. That's absolutely silly. (laughs) Up next, he remembers how wizards once made morph and then evolved it into megamorph. So he's waiting for the day that Fortel becomes mega Fortel. That's Dana Roach. Um, Tiny Bones was the most built commander from Jumpstart last year. And as of right now, uh, Tegrid is the most built commander from Kaldheim. So I think my uh, library of Lang spec is finally going to pay off here. (laughs) I certainly hope so, Dana. And also, I'm afraid. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all that data a little more context. Hey fellas, what is it that we're talking about this week? We're going to talk about domino deck building or cards with ripple effects. So basically we're going to be talking about thrumming stone all night. Um, well, I, I certainly hope not. Not cards that have ripple as a mechanic. No, cards that when you put them into the deck, it causes some other cascading changes within the deck too. That makes way more sense. Yes, I hope that you've prepared the right show notes, Dana. It should be a lot of fun. But before we get there, we're going to pause and give a huge thank you to the team at the Command Zone podcast who handle the post-production work on our podcast here, making it look as awesome and spiffy as it does. And we want to pause and give a huge thank you to our sponsors for the show, too. Yeah, the EDH RecCast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. Uh, Lately, we've seen a pretty big spike in the price of a lot of singles, so you can take advantage of that by buy listing cards you aren't playing to Card Kingdom and then use the money you get to buy more singles. Um, (laughs) They have a fantastic inventory of of basically any card you want, as does our other sponsor, TCG Player. Um, They have basically anything you want to pick up for your decks as well, and you can also set up a storefront there to sell cards you don't need, something I just did and it was really simple to do. Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card you want in question, choose the vendor link down below, and pick the card. Uh, Doing so supports both the site and the show. And after you buy list your cards or sell them on TCG Player, you can also go to patreon.com slash edhretcast and support the show directly that way as well. We have all sorts of patron tiers available to everyone. Whether you want to join the Discord that we have and the great community we have going on over there, you want to see the historical challenge of stats spreadsheet that we have going, or anything else over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. There's all sorts of good stuff going on, and it helps keep the lights on over here at the podcast. Well, over here and over there and over there, because because we all are pretty <laughs> spread out. Um, but we do even have a very special tier for shouting out a patron every single week. So this week, we want to give a very special thank you to Andrew McDonald, who did indeed have a farm. Uh, E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> E-I-E-I-O, brother, Matt. You're ridiculous. <laughs> thank you so much, Andrew McDonald, for supporting the show. All right, fellas, let's get to our main topic. That's domino deck building. Those cards that, when you put them into the deck, they actually have a bit of a ripple effect that can cause some other changes that you might want to uh, make up on the deck too. Really quick though, I want to kind of lay the groundwork for what it is that we're talking about and what it is that we're not talking about. So we're just going to be talking about in this episode cards within the 99. We're not going to be talking about how a commander 
and its abilities will cause different changes in your deck building because you know building around the commander synergies that's not a ripple effect so much as it is the point of commander is to build around the synergies for that commander um we're also not referring to like wholesale strategies i guess like dana you had mentioned the ripple for thrumming stone card like persistent petitioners for example if you put one into a deck that doesn't do much you'd be encouraged technically to run more than just one persistent petitioners but like that's such a huge overhaul to the deck that that's not really what we're talking about we're not talking about wholesale strategies it's more of just the one-offs and not so much of those um not i don't know persistent petitioners it's like a pistachio we get it you can never have just one but that's not what we're talking about here it's just what i want to establish we're also not really referring to combos here um yes you know running Micaeus could encourage you to play triskillian because you can go infinite with the two of them that's Uh not really a ripple effect it's only two cards and the net result is more of a tidal wave than a ripple Uh, yes, that's also a good point. We'd, like, yeah, you can combo off if you got Bruvac and Traumatized, but that's not really what we're going for either. Looking for the, the more subtle nuances, I would say. And those are really fun pieces of deck building, I think. So let's get to some of those examples. Most recently, I think we were kind of inspired by this topic because of all of the um, the snowy stuff that's happening in Kaldheim, I would say. Yeah, I mean, this... I struggle to say this is only a ripple effect because it was kind of pushed in, in the new set with Kaldheim. There's just cards that just get all sorts of payoffs for snow effects, but there's also some older ones that have been around. Like Into the North is just an old-timey ramp card that grabs snow lands out of your deck. So just any kind of snow changes that really does branch out into more than just the types of basics you want to play because there's other ways to benefit from that. Right, the Into the North could go and grab one of those other snow duels now. So if you are going to be playing one of those cards that cares about snow, that could change over a whole bunch of things in your mana base. If you like the new Blessing of Frost card to draw a bunch of uh, other cards because you have big creatures, that would encourage a really big shift over in the lands that you're running to help enable that type of strategy. So that's one of those ripple effects for sure. Yeah, and there are some cards that care about snow lands without even really explicitly saying they care about snow lands. Um, Field of the Dead is a perfect example where it cares about mm. lands that have different names. So, you know, if you're running Field of the Dead, it then makes you want to put some amount of snow lands into your deck just to make it easier to hit that seven card threshold. Field of the Dead is such a perfect example. Well, and the classic example would be extra planar lands as well, where it used to be, you know, you could exile your your snow covered swamp and your mono black deck and, and nobody else could really benefit from that. That's definitely a card that's going to see a lot more play, I think. But also you have to kind of address it with all of your basics because you want to make sure that you're benefiting from that extra planar lens the absolute most because whenever you just exile something like a snow-covered swamp, all the regular swamps still tap for only one mana, but those snow-covered swamps, they start adding extra mana because of that lens. Mm-hmm. Another thing that kind of comes to mind, like you mentioned swamps, snow-covered swamps, I would probably expect to see a lot more snow-covered swamps showing up in zombie decks as well uh, because of the new Narfi that is a zombie card that can pull itself back out of the graveyard with more snow mana. So if you want another zombie anthem effect, that might be one that you're interested in. And just having that one more zombie anthem in your zombie tribal deck encourages you to shift around some of the stuff going on in your mana base. So we could spend a whole bunch of time talking about snow, but the ripple effects are more than just, you know, the snow cards although that is definitely a big example. Um, Another one that comes to mind for me, though, when I think about ripple effects is one that actually came up when we were playing on stream with the one and only Ashlyn Rose on our stream, twitch.tv slash edhretcast. And I pulled out a late game Genesis Storm in my Virtus and Gorm deck. So that's one of my partner decks. And Genesis Storm gets even more awesome as you have cast your commander more times. It lets you flip 
flip until you hit a non-land permanent card off the top of your deck and slam it right into play. And when I cast that card, Ashlyn found herself praying that I would just hit some bad mana rocks or just like a Sakura Tribelder, just not get good hits because I was getting a lot of copies of that Genesis Storm after the game had been going on for so long. But I had to tell her, actually, because I'm playing Genesis Storm, the ripple effect of that card in my deck meant that I had removed all of those mana rocks. I replaced them just with spells instead. I'm not playing a Sakura Tribelder because I don't want to hit it off of that kind of card. I'm just using the small ramp spell so that they don't get hit by the Genesis Storm. That's a huge example of a domino deck building strategy that went on there. And I really like how you can sculpt the Genesis Storm to get even better as a result of that. Yeah, you really see that a lot in like Primal Surge decks, which <laughs> is a sorcery that lets you reveal card stuff of your library and just put permanents into play. Well, obviously that fails once you hit an instant or sorcery, so you want to maximize how many hits you get in your deck. It's one card you put in and you can quite frequently wind up changing a dozen different cards just to maximize how many you get off that Primal Surge. That's such a big one. And have y'all ever been at the receiving end of a Primal Surge? Because it's hilarious, but also terrifying. Also painful. Very painful, (laughs) traditionally. (laughs) Cool. What are some other examples that jump out to you guys? Well, I know Eldrazi Displacer is a card that uh, more often than not, people kind of forget about. So the reason that they do that, not because they don't put in the deck, but because the activated ability of, of Eldrazi Displacer being able to flicker another creature... Well, it requires colorless mana to activate it. And I think a lot of people, especially the more colors you're playing in a deck, they don't really put too many lands in their deck that produce colorless mana. Obviously, Soul Ring goes in pretty much every single deck. But a lot of lands, if you're putting in your dual lands, sometimes pain lands kind of get forgotten about because they do make colorless mana, but they don't make it in the deck. So sometimes it can be a little hard to activate Eldrazi Displacer. Well, particularly because it isn't a tap ability. It's an ability you can use repeatedly mm-hmm. by spending two and that specific colorless mana. So you're not just looking to have a couple of sources that get you that one. You ideally want multiple ways to produce that so you can activate the displacer multiple times in, in a perfect world. Yeah, absolutely. That is one card that will encourage you to take a closer look at how am I ramping? What other options do I have? Should I play more colorless producing mana rocks so that this card can be as busted as it could be when I draw it later on? That's definitely something you got to keep in mind while you're deck building. Um, Another one that comes to mind also from Kaldheim for me is actually just a mechanic, the foretell mechanic, where you can exile a card from your hand face down and you can cast it again later for the foretell cost. That's a really cool mechanic. I love the idea of spells on layaway, especially with that sort of secret thing going on. Ooh, what spell could it be? But if players know your deck really well and you've only got one foretell card in your deck, as good as it is, the predictability is just going to remove a really cool key piece of that mechanic. So if I'm playing one foretell card in my deck, I probably want to play two or three just to make sure that it's always a shell game whenever I play any one of those. Even if an opponent knows my deck really well, they don't know which of those foretell cards it could be. So again, I never want to just play one foretell spell in my deck. That's kind of like playing morph spells. If you only play one morph spell, it's always Willbender. Always Willbender. <laughs> but if, you, if you're playing multiple morph spells, then chances are you can mix up a little bit and throw people off, your, off the scent, even though it's still going to be Willbender. <laughs> Another one that jumps to mind here is Cabal Stronghold. Um, mm. Cabal Stronghold is a land that taps for black mana based on the number of basic swamps you control. That really forces you to be stingy with the amount of non-basics you run because the more basic swamps you have, the better Cabal Stronghold gets. And the the sooner you can get to that point where it actually puts you mana ahead. 
Um, and I, that's true even of Cabal Coffers to a degree. You know, I've had Cabal Coffers amount of black decks before and found myself thinking, I, I don't want this many non-swamp lands in here because I want to maximize how much black mana I can make off Cabal Coffers to the point where I've even put Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth, a land that makes lands into swamps, in a mono black deck just to like maybe squeeze some extra value out of that strip mine I might have in play. Oh yeah, I'm, that's the thing for me is that in my mono black deck, I'm not sure if I'll even play stuff like strip mine. I don't know if I'll use extra utility lands. Like I will be very stingy about utility lands because I want those cabal cards to just make so much more mana, and that requires me to be very disciplined during the deck building process to make those cards as good as they ought to be. Well, those kind of big mana producing lands or just big mana producing effects in general also tend to cause these kind of ripple effects. Um, you know, if, if you're in mono black, for example, and, and you have Cabal Coffers and Stronghold and then some things like Crypt Ghast or Narcana Revenant that also double the, the mana that you produce off just swamps in general, well, then things like doubling cube get really, really good because you're very frequently going to produce, you know, eight or 10 mana in a single turn because you're doubling up so much or you have those, those bomb lands like Cabal Coffers that produce a ton. And then you can double that with, with doubling cube. You, you have so many ways to do that. It becomes a very, very good card. So that really kind of ripples out as well. Well, and just anything that kind of makes mana off of a, a certain type of permanent. I know we talk about the older cards like Gaia's Cradle and, and Sarah Sanctum. They're kind of in that same realm as Cabal Coffers where if you build your deck right, they have the potential to, you know, make a ton of mana. You know, Gaia's Cradle giving you a green mana for every creature you have on the battlefield. Sarah Sanctum doing the same thing with white mana for every enchantment on the battlefield. But if you're not playing any creatures in the, your Gaia's Cradle deck, you might want to reconsider that. You know, if you're putting <laughs> Sarah Sanctum on, on a deck... Uh, probably want to be loading it up with enchantments as well. So making sure that you're you're putting the right kind of lands and the right kind of deck. Like if you're playing Enchantress, chances are Guy's Cradle probably not going to be doing a whole lot for you. Well, and and to move away from the ones that cost four thousand dollars, like you just mentioned, that's a good point. There's also the uh, growing rights of Itlamok can be another example. Mm -hmm. Like that effect isn't necessarily good in every single deck that contains green. There are plenty of decks that I run where I'm just like, yeah, this actually wouldn't do a whole ton for me. So if I am considering trying to get that type of big mana burst, it might you know make me need to reconsider my creature suite to make sure that that effect is actually putting in the work. Well, and not just with being able to make a lot of mana off of growing rights, but just being able to flip it as well if you don't have the the enough creatures in in play to flip growing rights of itlamok into itlamok um, that also is probably a probably not good place to be putting growing rights into the deck well in those kind of lands can then affect other lands you run if, if you're running multiple of those lands that make a ton of mana um, you know even nick though sometimes can do that in the right deck it can make a crazy amount of mana suddenly cards like deserted temple that you can use to untap Ooh. other lands get way more attractive particularly if you're looking at a two-color deck that might be running a cabal coffers and a sarah sanctum or something and petrified field is a land you can sacrifice to bring the land back to your hand to replay it people are going to be absolutely targeting those huge haymaker lands and that's a way for you to salvage it bring it back and put it back into play after somebody strip mines it you know what's really cruel it's that the petrified field that you mentioned it's non-basic and my cabal doesn't like that it's a non-basic right. that that's the trade-off but yeah yeah but no that's such a great example because yeah those lands are encouraging you to play 
other lands too. That's a huge ripple effect. That's such a great example that can cause you like you really got to navigate it very carefully while you're deck building. So here's the example um, that really pops to my mind when I think of of ripple effects because a, of a personal experience I had with the card, and that's Solemnity, which was an enchantment we got back in Amonkhet. Um, it just says players can't get counters, and counters can't get put on artifacts, creatures, enchantments, or lands. So that seems pretty simple. You know, you probably don't want to be running um, things like Everflowing Chalice that will put counters on itself when it comes into play because it just winds up being a zero mana rock that doesn't do anything. My experience with the card is I wanted to add it to a deck that was already running two cards that got counters where you don't want them to get counters. So Glacial Chasm and Mystic Remora are two very, very good cards that get upkeep counters on them. And once you hit a certain threshold, you have to sacrifice it because you can't pay that cost anymore. So, okay, I'll add Solemnity. It will shut down other people's counter nonsense, and it will make these two cards I have in the deck that much better. So I add it to the deck, and then I'm like, well, I need to remove Everfalling Chalice now for the reason we talked about. It's it's winds up being a zero mana rock if Solemnity's out that doesn't do anything. So I put in something else. But that's not where it ended, because after I'm looking at Solemnity, I realize, okay, Dark Depths. <laughs> if I mm-hmm. play Dark Depths with Solemnity in play... I just get a free 2020 Merrill Age. That's really, really good. That is really good. And if I'm playing Dark Depths, do I want to run Thespian Stage in case I don't have <laughs> Solemnity out? I can use it to copy that Dark Depths. Or if I have the Dark Depths out before Solemnity, I can use Vesuva to, to copy the Dark Depths and get the Merrill Age as well. So now that I'm looking at running like these three different lands that all interact, then I wonder... Do I want to run Teleria West, an expedition map? <laughs> Teleria West to go get those lands, an expedition map to do the same. And hey, since I'm running all of that stuff, Enlightened Tutor will go get Solemnity and I'll go oh, get no. expedition map. So I need to find a slot for that. And next thing I knew over the course of like 15 minutes of mapping this out, like 12% of my deck had changed. Just from adding one card. (laughs) All it took was one card. Dana, Cascade is supposed to just be an ability on spells, not in your deck. (laughs) That's a huge Cascade trip that you just described. Yeah, yeah. And and it it was just one card into one card into one card. and, And that's a great example of an unintended ripple effect for Cascade. Yeah, quite domino deck building there. Did you end up keeping it, though? Like, that's a big question. I ran it for a while and wound up taking it out in part because I changed so many things and I just gradually began rolling them all back one at a time. And then at mm-hmm. some point I took Slumity out. I don't even remember why, but I, so that all eventually got rolled back. Yeah, a lot of lessons to learn from that for sure. We'll take a brief pause right now. Like this whole discussion on domino deck building is really cool. But you know what's also really cool is um, challenging some stats. There's a whole bunch of data on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards see too much play or too little play. So we'd like to challenge the stats in every single episode. So let's do that now before we get back to the dominoes. Matt, how about you start us off this week? What's your challenge? 
So my challenge this week is going to be for a fairly new commander that we saw come out in call time. That is going to be Orvar the All Form. It is a four mana mono blue legendary shapeshifter that has changeling. And whenever you cast an instant or sorcery that targets one or more permanents you control, you create a token that is a copy of one of those permanents. And then if you have to discard that card for some reason, um, you also get that ability to make a copy of a permanent. Uh, but the card that I really want to dig deep on here is a card from Homelands, believe it or not. Somehow it, it is a card from Homelands that is underplayed in a certain deck. Um, and that card is Jinx. It is one in a blue for an instant that says target land becomes a basic land type of your choice until end of turn. And then you draw a card at the beginning of the next turn's upkeep. Well, since this targets a permanence that you control, it is targeting a land that you control, you're able to both make a copy of that land, which is rampant mono blue, which you don't get to come by very often, but also get to draw a card at the beginning of the next turn's upkeep. So it's a cantrip for two mana that ramps you. I think this effect is just, it's great. I know Dana uses uh, several effects like this in his Talrand deck where you're able to ramp in mono blue, which just, it doesn't happen very often. I believe it's retraced image Dana is the one that I know I've seen you use several times. But this is just a great it cantrips, it ramps you for two mana, uh, only being played in 27% of Orvar decks. I think that is too low for just how rare of an effect that is for mono blue decks. So definitely want to look at this. I know Homelands isn't exactly the, uh, the cornucopia of bombs for Commander, but situationally, this card does quite a bit of work. It is so crazy that Orvar also triggers when you target your own lands, not just cloning your own creatures. Like, that is a thing that I totally missed when I read Orvar, so well spotted there, Mr. Morgan. All right, I'm going to move to my challenge now. I have a card that I think is a little bit overplayed so far, specifically in Kadena Slinking Sorcerer decks. Kadena is the Morph Sultai commander, loves to get all of those face-down creatures, and since those face-down creatures are colorless, a lot of decks uh, that have been built since the new Zendikar set came out have been including the card Forsaken Monument, which pumps up your colorless creatures. About 27% of Kadena decks so far are playing the Forsaken Monument, but I want to challenge that as potentially being too high and not quite uh, really what Kadena is all about, because Kadena does get a lot of colorless face-down creatures onto the battlefield that this would pump, but one of the cool things about Kadena is actually using those morph effects, and as soon as you flip one of those things over, it's no longer going to get that buff. I think that this might be a dangerous card to actually devote too much effort to compared to some of the other effects that green and black and blue can already do to pump up all of those armies of creatures anyway. So I want to challenge Forsaken Monument. That card's a little bit pricey anyway. Don't bother with that one and find a couple of other different anthem effects instead in those colors that will benefit morphs whether they're face up or they're face down. That is a pretty good suggestion, Joey. And I would also note that the ability on Monument to kind of double up the colorless mana you produce off a of source is something that you probably don't use quite as much in a three-color deck as well because you kind of <laughs> need the colored sources much more than you would like in a one- or two-color deck. So that's a good call. Yeah. All right. Let's move to you. What's your challenge, Dana? Mine was suggested by a listener on Twitter who goes by at DuoJustD. Uh, and this is a card for Atla Palani. And I'll click read the relevant ability on Atla Palani. Whenever an egg you control dies, reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature card. And put that card onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. 
So the card suggested here is Shield of Velus Vel from way back in the lore one. It's a one white mana tribal instant, um, and it has changeling. So if you have something that cares about specific creature types, this is all of those types. But what's more relevant here is it says creatures target player control get plus zero plus one and gain all creature types until end of turn. This includes eggs. So <laughs> it's currently only in 14% um, of Atlapalani decks, and it's some pretty amazing board wipe protection where someone goes to, you know, cast Wrath of God and wipe the board, and for one single white mana, everything you control, including Atlapalani, becomes an egg and just <laughs> then lets you, as everyone else clears their field in front of them, you flip over three or four or six or eight or however many creatures you had in play, that many creatures out of your library, which an Atlapalani deck tend to be pretty big beaters. I agree with this pick. 14% of Atlapalani decks running a, a one-mana way to turn a board wipe into maybe a good chance for you to just win the game. It should be in more decks. Way to go, Duo. That is a great suggestion. I love and, again, am scared of that challenge. <laughs> All right, guys, let's get back to our main topic. I just want to keep talking about cards that have uh, those cool domino effects on deck building. What other ideas jump out to you? What other cards have you noticed have an influence on the other cards in your deck? As soon as you put in this one card, it makes you motivated to change or pay attention to other things going on in your deck. Matt, any ideas jump out to you? I mean, since you're going to hand it off to me and, and I do love me some creatures, Birthing Pod absolutely a card that you do need to kind of build around in a sense to make sure that you're getting value off of it. Birthing Pod is an old, old, well, Scars of Mirrodin block, but an artifact that lets you basically sacrifice a creature, then tutor up and put into play another creature that has the CMC of that creature you sacrifice plus one. So you're able to kind of scale up and, and chain sacrificing different creatures in order to get something bigger along the line. So one thing you need to make sure you're doing with Birthing Pod is having a steady curve of creatures in your deck and multiple copies of them to make sure that you can activate this over and over and over again. So say I sacrifice a two drop, I can two drop a three, convert a mana cost creature, then sacrifice the three into a four, etc. So making sure that you have an actual curve in the deck to make sure you're able to chain these together is something you definitely want to keep in mind as you're playing birthing pod decks. Yeah, I find myself definitely running into instances where I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll cut this creature. Oh, wait, no, that's my only six drop. Mm -hmm. I definitely shouldn't remove that because I've got birthing pod and I don't want it to miss a step on that staircase. Yeah, it's, it's super important to make sure you're just keeping everything going. Speaking of really powerful green cards, Peer Imaginative Rascal is a good example of of a card that causes a ripple effect on decks. Mm. Um, the way Peer works is when you put a counter on a thing, you put an additional counter on that thing. That's really, really useful if you are putting positive counters on things. And it's way less useful with something like Mystic Remora, where the, the counters force you to pay mana, and the more that you, ha that you have on the card, the more mana it costs to keep it around. So mm. it's the kind of thing you want to avoid maybe having cumulative upkeep cards in your deck when you also have a Peer. 
Yeah, or, I mean, the inverse could also be true. If you're just playing a green deck and you got some plus one counters and you've got a peer in your deck, you might be encouraged instead of discouraged. You might actually want to go find those Everflowing Chalice or Astral Cornucopia uh, as force as a, a form of mana acceleration because that could incidentally double up a little bit, get you some extra value because of those types of effects like Pure Imaginative Rascal to give you a little bit more benefit than a traditional ramp spell might. Yeah, that's probably pretty true of even a, like a proliferate effect deck as well. I discovered in a mono white Jeru Super Friends deck that when I put enough proliferate effects in there to put extra counters on Planeswalkers, then suddenly Astro Cornucopia and Coalition Relic and Everflowing Chalice got way more attractive as mana racks because I could effectively cheat counters onto them while I was putting counters on Planeswalkers. Very nice. So another card that I think has some definite ripple effects as far as how you want to be building around it is going to be Panharmonicon. That's just a uh, artifact. If you're Saffron Olive, you're very, very familiar with this card. <laughs> uh, but it's just whenever an artifact or a creature enters the battlefield, and if it would cause any sort of enter the battlefield ability to trigger, it triggers an additional time. Well... If you are putting this into a deck, you want to make sure that you're capitalizing it and having a decent amount of Enter the Battlefield abilities that are going to trigger. I know I've seen a couple times people have put Panharmonicon into a deck, but they only had three or four cards that were actually going to benefit from this. So if you're going to be flickering cards or anything like that, you want to make sure that you're putting at least, I would say, five or six, if not more, types of abilities that are going to be triggering from Panharmonicon before you think about sliding it into a deck. I've actually considered Panharmonicon in my Marin deck. It's not a dedicated blink deck, but there's a lot of ETB value happening there. Mm -hmm. Now, I also like LTB leaves the battlefield triggers, especially death triggers. So it didn't quite make the cut for me. But that is the kind of card that once I was tempted to put it into just that one deck, even though it wasn't a blink strategy, it did make me consider, well, what other cards am I going to try and put in here to also make that work? Are there enough of them? So yeah, well spotted. So speaking of graveyards, and this is always Joey's favorite topic. Yeah. Um, although the card I'm going to mention might not be, um, Rest in Peace, a, a no. two-mana two enchantment that makes your graveyard go away and makes all cards that would go in your graveyard go away. What? Why? Why Why would you plot twist me like this? Top 10 anime betrayals. I was happy talking about Marin. Why are you doing this to me? I am indeed history's greatest monster. Um, but, but this single piece of graveyard hate could shut off quite a few cards in your deck. Rest in Peace and Sun Titan in the same deck is not going to be a good time for anybody. So maybe you want to kind of avoid recursion stuff from your graveyard if you are playing Rest in Peace and it's a prominent part of your strategy to shut other people down. Um, you know, I, I have Rest in Peace in one deck. It's in my, my Azorius Sphinx deck. And as a result, when I see a good piece of recursion that would work in those colors, I just don't run it because I know that there's a good chance that Rest in Peace might be in play and it's gonna, gonna keep that, that Savin's Reclamation from working. Or it's gonna keep me from being able to delve cards away to, to draw off Treasure Cruise. Well, well, Dana, what if, hear me out, you recur Rest in Peace with Sun Titan? <sighs> That's a, about that. That's my, my brain is just broken. That's an <laughs> infinite loop that I can't get out of. That's fair. I don't like this part of the discussion, so I just want to move on, please. Can we All move right, on, please? That's we can, we, we, we can do that. 
for, no for your sake, John. Please leave my graveyard alone. Um, okay, so moving from that, um, another, actually a full-on mechanic that kind of jumps to my mind um, that would also cause you to have like those re-evaluations of the cards in your deck is actually just the cascade mechanic. You know, when you cast this spell, you'll flip cards from the top of your deck until you find a lower CMC spell. Um, and then you can cast that one for free, which is a really, really great value engine that was doing a lot to some other formats until a little bit recently, let's be real. Um, but if you are playing even just a random cascade card like Apex Devastator, for example, the cascade, 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 cascade thing for 10 mana, well, that could result in some awkward situations if you haven't prepared your deck properly. If you've got like counter spells in the deck, for instance, kind of a bad hit off of a cascade spell. Or worse, if you've got other like big hydras that have X in their mana cost, it does not feel good to cascade into a card that has X in its mana cost because X will just be zero. So if you're playing those cascade spells, those X spells are kind of a bit of a non-bow and that domino is not going to move the way that you want it to. So one of them kind of precludes the other. Well, and this kind of thing also comes up sometimes in, in decks that copy a lot of spells, particularly ones that that copy spells in a way you can't necessarily control. Um, you know, copying a counter spell isn't very good in a deck unless you're copying something like Mystic Confluence, where you can use the modes to draw cards. So like that kind of counterfill becomes much more attractive in a in a deck that's going to be copying things. Yeah, because you do have to keep those modes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and an Apex Devastator also happens to be a Hydra and probably gets played in a non-zero amount of Hydra decks where may actually not really be the best option because there's a lot of X spells that happen to be hydras so expels in general with cascade kind of a non-bow there as well where they don't really interact in a way that are very positive because when you cascade into an expel x is always going to be zero so chances are that that hydra is going to come in as a zero zero and then just die and you wasted a cascade trigger right there yeah it, it goes from hail hydra to fail hydra to watch out for those dominoes Ooh, for sure well played well <laughs> thank played. you well another place those those x creature spells don't necessarily work that well is if you're running wild pair it's a mm-hmm. green enchantment that when a creature comes into play, you can search your library for a creature that has the same equal power plus toughness and put that creature into play. It's a really neat card to cheat stuff into play, but you need to be able to find something with that that correlated power and toughness in your library. So when you're putting your creature list together, it's usually a good idea to have multiple creatures at at each of those sums. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is a very meticulous card if you put it into your deck. Like, I find myself, you know, organizing by certain categories or organizing by mana curve. But if I'm playing a wild pair, I'm also going to be evaluating what cards am I putting in or what cards am I taking out based on whether wild pair is going to find me something. If I don't have something that totals to seven or that totals to nine or that totals to ten or whatever, like, if this is the only thing in the deck and wild pair wouldn't get me any extra benefit is that worth it? Do I really want to run into that situation? Should I try and prepare against that? Is there another card that could go in that slot that would fit into that mold? That's a great suggestion. Well, and and Joey, you mentioned a second ago a mechanic that you don't think really plays very well if you don't build around it. Um, I would say just a lot of landfall cards in general kind of we see a lot that just came out in Zendikar Resurgent, Scute Swarm, Felidar Retreat, lots of others that have very powerful effects. But if you're putting them into non-dedicated landfall decks, sometimes it can be a little sketchy. You want to make sure you're running enough lands. I know in my Miri deck, I put Scute Swarm in there. I don't have very many fetch lands. I don't have a whole lot of ways to bounce 
balance lands and play multiple lands per turn. So sometimes you want to make sure when you're putting those landfall cards into different decks that aren't dedicated landfall strategies, sometimes that can kind of be a little shady spot right there too. Yeah, if you're playing Scoot Swarm, like that card can totally be good whether you're playing Landfall or not. Yes. But you got to prepare for it. You do. Yeah, you want to make sure you either have some ramp spells around. You always want to make sure you're getting at least one trigger with all of these sorts of Landfall abilities. But yeah, just making sure that, you know, when you are putting it into a deck, are you able to trigger it consistently is a question you do need to be asking yourself. Well, you know, similarly to that, Matt, you know, things like the Gitrog Monster, once that's in your 99, then things like Cycling Lands that you might not have been running already become way more attractive. So mm-hmm. at that point, do you start pulling out some basics and putting in some more lands that have cycling just so you can abuse the Gitrog Monster a little bit when it's in play? I, I totally love that. And I also, like, all hail the Hypnotoad. Sorry, I'm just at a loss for words. Like, I love the Gitrog Monster. And I think that the Gitrog Monster agrees with me that, Dana, you should not be running Rest in peace, don't do it. <laughs> Hail the Hypnotoad. This Man, is my you, one opportunity to hypnotize you into not playing Grave Hate. You are really struggling to get past this Rest in Peace, I can see. So, it, so, it's been that way for like four years. <laughs> so how about this? Hermit Druid. We'll, we'll switch the topic to Hermit Druid and talk about that. Mm, that makes me that's this this appeases the, the Hypnotoad. <laughs> Thank you, Dana. Yeah, Hermit Druid will mill you until you find basic lands. That's such a good way to dump tons of cards into your graveyard. I love Hermit Druid. I do not love having a lot of basic lands in a deck that contains Hermit Druid. I like having like four basic lands in a deck that contains Hermit Druid because I don't want to just mill like accidentally two or three cards. I want to mill like 20. I want to mill like 40. That's a great one. But Hermit Druid also has Dana, like you mentioned, sort of your solemnity situation where there was a huge cascading effect on that. Hermit Druid will have the same type of effect because, yeah, it's easy to not play a ton of basic. I've just got four basics here or whatever. Like, that's probably fine. That adversely affects the other type of ramp options that you use. If you've played a Cultivate and a Kodama's Reach and you've got all the basics out of your deck and then you try to activate Hermit Druid, you just lose. So you might want to invest more carefully in the types of ramp that you're using as long as you're playing Hermit Druid too. Yeah, I mean, I I can't sign on with Hermit Druid because you want to be playing very few basics. And man, that that's like my identity on this podcast is telling people <laughs> to play more basics. No, I refuse. I refuse. Hermit Druid's too good. But you just got to watch for the ways that it's not just the one card. It also affects the, you know, that one card affects your mana, but then that mana also affects your ramp spells. Like there's a big domino going on there. Well, another kind of cluster of cards that have this effect, you have things like All is Dust, which is a board wipe where everyone sacrifices all the uh, colored and non-land permanents they control. So the more colorless things you have in a deck with All is Dust, the better that performs because the more stuff you have that survives that that board wipe. Uh, similarly, Mystic Forge is a artifact where you can cast colorless um, spells off the top of your library. So again, the more of those colorless or artifact spells you have in that deck, the more likely you are to get hits and be able to cast extra free cards, basically. Um, so like it encourages you to do things like maybe turn that instant or source respeed removal spell into an executioner's capsule, which is an artifact that lets you sacrifice it to to kill non-black creatures, or maybe turn that ponder into a witching well, which is an artifact that kind of lets you scry. Um, there are just like cards you can find versions of that work well with those kind of effects. If you're running Max Opal, you want to have some density of artifacts in that deck. So that can always tap for a mana. And that might make you, again, turn some of those spells into artifacts that do similar things. And then at that point, you know, once you have 
some density of artifacts in your deck to make those things work, then you might have a situation where lands like Academy Ruins or Buried Ruins that both let you recur artifacts, those get much better. Or spells like Thoughtcast or Artificer's Epiphany that become cheaper to cast or, or more effective to cast based on artifacts, those get better too while also lowering your density of artifact counts. So like there's a real tricky balance there you want to achieve with how much of that ripple effect changes a whole bunch of aspects of your deck. I love all the artifact talk, Dana. And actually, all this artifact talk has made me think of another artifact that I'm surprised you're not playing in your mono-white deck. I know that you have a mono-white uh, Super Friends deck, Jeru, with eyes open. And mono-white can be a little hard up on some card advantage. So, you know, a card like the Immortal Sun would be great to help you draw <laughs> extra cards each turn. Fantastic. Right? It's a good point, Joey. I will add it in immediately. Yeah, why wouldn't you play that in your mono-white Super Friends deck, do you think? Uh, because it renders Planeswalkers basically useless. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's an exaggerated example, obviously, like that deck. But like, if you are playing a deck that where you want to play the Immortal Sun, count how many Planeswalkers your deck has. It might be two, and that would be a big non-bow. That would um, not work at all. Yeah. Being able to shut down your own deck probably is not the most successful strategy, no matter <laughs> what you're doing. Um, if we could give you a strong hint one way or another, um, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that indeed you got to make sure that you find those ways like the immortal sun is great and elspeth sun's champion is also great i'd be very wary about playing them both in the same deck because the domino might fall in a way that i don't really want there for sure um dana i see also that you uh, have a, a personal affinity for the card ophiomancer is that right i'm i'm a big fan of ophiomancer it is a three mana creature that makes snakes with death touch during your upkeep as long as you don't control any other snakes so you can't make a snake every upkeep ideally you'll have some kind of a sack outlet or some way to use those snakes um it's a fantastic card however you don't want to be running additional snakes beyond the one it makes because you can find yourself in a position where you have a snake in play and an Ophiomancer in hand, and when you cast it, it's not going to really do anything. So, um, you know, in, in the situation where I was running it in a deck, I only had two other snakes in the whole deck, and on multiple occasions, it wound up shutting off my Ophiomancer, or at least, you know, if I had the Ophiomancer out first and drew the snake, then I didn't want to cast it. So that was a situation where even just having two cards, the 99, made that one card not work often enough that I took Killer Snakes out. Yeah, that's a really great example. That like The domino goes both ways. Sometimes there are ways that it makes you discouraged from playing certain cards you got to be careful of. Um, but man, the last example that we've got here is probably my favorite. Matt, please take us through it. This is a card that encourages you to play even more toolboxy stuff. What hammer we got? The, what hammer? Well, it's a sun forger. It's no hammer. It's it, it forges suns. It's a forger. I think a it's a hammer that does it. I don't think so. But basically, sun forger is that Boros equipment. Uh, it's kind of forged its way into being a staple, pun intended, um, of being able to you know disattach itself from a creature and then you search up instants. Uh, it's quite the powerful thing to be you know being able to pull instants out of your library into your hand. Um, Man, it's good. It creates a toolbox out of your entire library, being able to pull 
removal or fog effects or whatever you might be needing you know at any given time sunforger is able to do it so you want to make sure that you're building a very diverse suite of targets for sunforger to be able to tutor up at any given time the, yeah. the big example i think of with sunforger is when i see it like in a jeskai deck where the person starts running any of the counter spells that happen to have red in the casting costs there's a handful of of red blue counter spells because you can go use Sunforger to fetch that counter spell. So suddenly that kind of suboptimal counter becomes way better when you have an artifact that can go grab a counter spell on demand. I also noticed that Sunforger can increase the number of charms that a person is playing too, because that's one card that you could get with Sunforger, but it's got three different effects. So if you need a fog, Dawn Charm can do it. If you need to regenerate a thing, Dawn Charm could do it. Like that's just one card slot, but it gives Sunforger so much extra uh, ubiquity, basically. Like that is a great card that you have to build around, but man, just putting that one card into your equipment deck can encourage you to play a lot more spells inside that equipment deck as well. Yeah, like functionally, Sunforger kind of turns, you know, if you're running those charms, for example, it can turn three or four cards into eight or ten different options you have at any given time, depending on the situation. That's amazing. Yeah. So, guys, domino deck building cards with ripple effects. This is a really fascinating idea. And listeners, if you've got other ideas for other cards that you're playing that you've noticed have had other cascading changes occurring within your own deck, we'd love to hear about them. But do you have any other uh, final thoughts, guys, to wrap up about this topic, about those cards that you play and then they can cause a whole bunch of extra changes just within the 99? Um, you know, the thing I would say to watch out for mostly is to watch out for how the changes you've made from the ripple then affect other cards, for example. So let's say you pull those snakes out of your deck for the Ophiomancer. Has that messed up the math for your wild pair that's also mm-hmm. in the same deck? So just just keep an eye on whether or not the ripples cause additional ripples. I <laughs> I, really I love that one. point though, Dana. I, I kind of had a similar experience where I had Beast Whisperer in my Miri deck. Well, I want to be putting a lot of creature spells into my grave or into my library, obviously, because whenever I cast a creature spell, I draw a card off Beast Whisperer. So I started putting in a bunch of creature effects and replacing some spells with creatures that do the same thing. Well, then I turn into, well, I've added all these ETB type of effects on creatures. Do I want Panharmonicon now? Do I want to continue, you know, developing off of that? So seeing where some of those ripples take you and, and just what that unlocks by the, the the updates that you do to a deck sometimes can lead you down even more powerful strategies the more that you look into them. Yeah, I'm going to hardcore say that if you change like three cards in your deck, you might need to change two more. Like that's how like all of those cards are so interconnected. Sometimes adding one card isn't just adding one card. And especially when going over, you know, preparing for this show, getting some ideas together, a thing that I kind of noticed was that it was actually a little bit tough to find good examples of cards with ripple effects that I'm actually playing because often I'll notice that I'm not putting a card into my deck because of its ripple effects. Like I mentioned, uh, Matt, with the Panharmonicon example in my Marin deck, I ended up not committing to a Panharmonicon in Marin because the demands that it would have had on my deck were actually too great. The deck building cost was too 
strong just to add that one card mm. because it would make me alter some other things about the deck that I didn't want to go necessarily into. So sometimes you got to watch out for those two. Are the cascading changes that the deck might have in the deck, like, is that going to be too much of a cost that would take you away from what you want to do? And that might be a reason why you're not letting some cards in, but that you can make room for them if you do start to change things back around. Yeah. That's really good advice, Joey, and it's 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 advice I wish you to give me in the past when I've screwed up debt. <laughs> I mean, Dana, you're the one that keeps the Excel sheets and murder boards of <laughs> of your deck building process. So I think if there's anybody that's going to be able to give a a, a doctorate level lesson on these effects, it's going to be you. It's a fair point. That is a very fair point. And listeners, once again, we would love to hear from you about your experiences with these domino deck building cards and different examples that you've noticed and the times that those dominoes were definitely worth setting up or sometimes that maybe you would want to avoid it because of those. It'd be awesome. Please continue this conversation. We'd love to see the other cards that you have that fit into this category as well. But for now, fellas, I think what we got to do is call this episode to a close. So thank you guys so much for joining me. And if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming paper games over the spell table, twitch.tv slash edhretcast. Uh, we have weak guests on every single week, and the games are always a ton of fun unless Joey wins. So make sure you tune in <laughs> and watch those games as well. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. Uh, you can find me on my other podcast, CMDR Central, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash edhretcast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast on Facebook and on Twitter at edhretcast. Also, if you have a question about the data that we're talking about, you can contact us at edhretcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at the Command Zone podcast for handling a post-production work on our podcast here. And our thanks go to our sponsors for the show, TCG Player and cardkingdom.com. You can find them using the price info links on edhrec, or you can visit cardkingdom.com slash edhrec, and that shows your support for the show. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs> <laughs>